Good morning. morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your many blessings, for your love, for your design for life, for Jesus who has brought us the truth about you. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you, your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, the role of the church in community. And the title is Jesus ministered to their needs. And just before we get into the lesson, I, I received this email this week. It says, Dear team, my mother and I are working in China, sharing with all who will listen the good, the God who is love. Those who hear love this. It answers the deep longing of the human heart. We are currently home for the summer holiday, but we'll be returning there August 22. I would like to have the set of videos, uh, talking about the, the sets that we give away, uh, before we go. In China, you are my Sabbath school that I join every week. I am a teacher in a university, and my job is to get my students to talk. I teach them the integrative, evidence-based approach to truth and the seven levels of moral development. They love my classes. This is the grace of God for which I am deeply grateful. Thank you for making these materials free, as I also share the website with them. I was so sorry that the remedy was not available in hardcover. This is uh, we'd, we'd run out and stop shipping, but I did have a few extra that I shipped to her. Those I have shared um, the remedy with have loved it, and it quickly becomes their favorite version. We did a whirlwind tour during a spring festival of Daniel and Revelation, and it helped them to see Jesus as the center of all prophecy and time. I want to thank all those who make it possible for those of us with limited or no income to have these materials. I, too, believe this is the final message to go to the world. I need constant reminders that God is not what his enemies have made him out to be, arbitrary, unforgiving, and severe, which my natural, fearful, selfish heart gravitates toward, but that he is a good father who loves and wants me above all. And this is what I want to share in word and life to hasten the day. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and God bless the work you are doing. Amen. So, uh, moving on to the lesson, we're doing Jesus ministered to their needs. And if you read the memory verse for this week, it is um, Matthew 9.35, and it says, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And the lesson title, Jesus ministered to their needs. In this text, what needs do you hear that Jesus was meeting. He was meeting sickness here. And that is uh, a, a need that most of us, when we hear, meeting the needs of people, our minds most typically gravitate towards physical needs, the needs of the body, uh, whether it's clothing or food or, or health care. We, we often think that first. But did you notice that's not what they listed first? <laughs> yeah, the first thing was teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So it's true, every disease, I'm not minimizing that. But do we sometimes jump to that and, and over, what good does it do a man to gain the whole world and lose, what good does it do to have perfect health for a hundred years and lose your soul? And, and I think sometimes, and I, I've known people that love the Adventist health message so they can go out and party more. <laughs> Their bodies can endure more dancing, and so forth and so on. Is, is that the purpose of the health message? <laughs> no, no. So, what, so today, if you think today, what is the greatest need? Jesus is meeting their needs. What about today? What is the greatest need of humanity today? 
love, love. Okay? This is from the book Education, page 29. It says, Christ is the light which lights every man that comes into the world. As through Christ every human being has life, so also through him every soul receives some ray of divine light. Not only intellectual, but spiritual power, a perception of right, a desire for goodness exists in every heart. But against these principles, there is struggling an antagonistic power. The result of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is manifest in every man's experience. There is in his nature a bent to evil, a force which, unaided, he cannot resist. To withstand this force, to attain that ideal which in his inmost soul he accepts as alone worthy, he can find help in but one power. That power is Christ. Cooperation with that power is man's greatest need. In all educational efforts, should not this cooperation be the highest aim? Do you think that's true, that, that our greatest need is Christ? Mm-hmm. Which I think, you know, God is love, and Christ is fully God, so I don't think when you said love, it was wrong at all. I think that's an, just a synonym, if you understand who Christ really was. But why do you think Christ is the greatest of all needs? Why is Christ the greatest of all our needs? Because he told us the truth about God. He told us the truth about God. Because when you know him, he fulfills all your needs. He, he fulfills all of our needs. Yeah, I mean, you're complete in him. I, I like these answers. Any other answers? He's the only remedy to our condition. He's the only remedy to our condition. Yeah. Into eternity, that's all there's going to be. There's not going to be a remedy for ills. There's not going to be whatever. That's going to be normal. There won't be any more sickness or death or any of that. Yeah. So Christ is what is normal. So, with that in mind, if this is the greatest of all human needs, is this the greatest need for only Christians? Or is Christ the greatest need for all humanity? And I think that's true, but all humanity doesn't realize that. So, how do we help people realize their need? By displaying it. By displaying it. Other thoughts? So, I read in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 387, the following. Sin is the greatest of all evils, and it is, our, it is ours to pity and help the sinner. Do we often approach and see sinners with pity, compassion, or do we see them with condemnation? <laughs> Katrina? Yeah, it punished New Orleans for all its wickedness. That's what they deserved. Is that the Christian attitude? Or do we see them? Uh, did you hear certain preachers on, on the news saying that afterwards? Yeah, and you think why God has a bad name, why Christianity has a bad name. So this author says that ours is to pity and help the sinner. And I think that goes back to the law lens. If you see the law's design law, then it's like laws of health. This is what happens when we see somebody sick. Even if they're really deformed with gross lesions, we, we have pity and compassion. We want to heal them. That's what we want to do. But when we look at it through judicial models that, that it's, it's breaking the rules, then we want to punish. They, they need to be punished. And that really seems to cut to the root of it. Anyway, keeping on with the quote. But not all can be reached in the same way. There are many who hide their soul hunger. These would be greatly helped by a tender word or a kind remembrance. There are others who are in the greatest need, yet they know it not. They do not realize their terrible destitution of the soul. Multitudes are so sunken in sin that they have lost the sense of eternal realities, lost the similitude of God, and they hardly know whether they have souls to be saved or not. They have neither faith in God nor confidence in man. Many of these can be reached only through acts of disinterested kindness. Their physical wants must be 
must first be cared for. They must be fed, cleansed, and and decently clothed. As they see the evidence of your unselfish love, it will be easier for them to believe in the love of Christ. So there were two groups here. What were the two groups in this particular paragraph you heard described? First group, those who know their need, but hide it. They, they wear a mask when they go out in public. They put on the pretense of all's good, but they really are living insecure, n- not good enough, feeling condemned, that no one could love them if they really knew the wickedness and sinfulness in their heart. They live behind that pretense. The woman caught in adultery, drug before Jesus, the woman at the well. These would be examples of people like this, hiding. And how did Jesus meet them? Just like this author said, with tender words. And he reached them with tender words. But there's another class described here as well. Those who, who are so bent in, in, let's just say, living outside of God's design, they've been so damaged by that lifestyle, they don't even know they have souls to save. They're burdened with life and ignorant of God and don't trust even human beings. They see threats in everyone. Everyone's taken advantage of them. These are people who've probably been mistreated and exploited and taken advantage of and made wrong decisions in their own life, and, and, and things haven't turned out well for them. And this is there to be reached by acts of disinterested. What's disinterested kindness mean? It means we don't have any interest in them at all. <laughs> is that what disinterested kindness means? No. Ah, no agenda. So in other words, when we go out to our mission work, are we going out to do kindness so that we can baptize them in the Adventist church? Increase the tithe base. To increase our tithe base? To convert them? Is that disinterested kindness? Or do we have an agenda? agenda. See, when you have an agenda, then your actions are not perceived as interested in them. You're trying to get something from them. You know, I've got to get so many baptisms this quarter, I'm going to lose my job. And I've, I've, been, I've, I've brought you food, I've done this. Don't, don't you owe it to me to get, be baptized so I can get my credits and check off at the conference office? Now, don't you feel guilty about going to church with me because I did this for you? Yeah. Right. Yes, I did this. Don't you want to go to church? Yeah, you get that kind of stuff. Disinterested kindness means that we're actually interested in them and disinterested in ourselves. Interested in their welfare. So examples, if you want to see an example of this, look at Sabbath's lesson. It says, a retired Seventh-day Adventist woman in Africa, in an African country did not wish to stop ministering in retirement. Her community needed healing because of the ravages of HIV AIDS. The most urgent need was that AIDS orphans didn't have adequate nutrition. In 2002, she and her church started feeding the children in the community a solid meal six days a week. They started with 50 children and as of 2012 were serving 300 children per day. That led them to start a preschool, and now 45 of those children are attending. Uh, Other services included distributing clothing from address, sharing vegetables and maize from a garden that they maintain, taking care of the sick. They started a skills development program for women who uh, who teach one another skills that help them earn a living. This demonstration of the love of Jesus spawned, spawned a new church. There were five members in the beginning, and as of 2012, 160 were attending. God provided means for building an orphanage and a new church building in 2012. What a powerful and practical example of how meeting the needs of a community is so important to Christians. 
Do you see there was a need and it didn't seem like they were trying, they, they were trying to start a church. It, it just, people wanted to start meeting together because of what was happening and how they were helping people. And people were being helped, saying, I'd like to help too. And, that, and they started networking. What was drawing the people in this particular story? What drew them? Hope. What else? Kindness. Kindness. Yes. There's no question there was kindness. I'm going I'm to I'm, 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 I'm lead your mind a little farther, though. Yeah, absolutely kindness, absolutely love, absolutely compassion, but something more. How about if they were kind and compassionate and teaching them about bleeding and leeching their sick to get them well? But, uh, but they're kind and compassionate, and, they, and, 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 they're, and they're practicing methods that actually make them worse. Would, would, would have more, more come if they're dying from the treatment. So, so yes, compassion and love, but something else was going on there as well. Ah, help that worked. Now, why was the help working? There's a reason the help was working. Why? It's true, meaning it's operating on what kind of law? Okay. Without their even realizing it, the gospel is being preached to them as the truth of God's design for life. Remember Romans chapter 1, God's invisible qualities and divine nature are being seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. They're being taught a way of living that puts them in harmony with God's design for life. And when we move towards harmony for God's design, healing happens. Physical healing, mental healing, we have peace with ourselves, the relational healing, and you see the community is healing. Why is the community healing? Because in this description here, they're doing things that are in in harmony with the laws of health. This is why. Which is much different than what might have been practiced by missionaries from the Dark Ages, when the bubonic plague was was ravaging Europe. And and what was the problem? It was a punishment from a wrathful God, and they needed to confess their sins and pay penance and bring more money to the church and and so forth and so on. And and yet the, the plague kept on going. Because they were not actually harmonized with the laws of health by killing the fleas that were spreading the disease. <laughs> so the last sentence has this, this phrase, a powerful and practical example. Let me ask you this question. Is there any form of truth that is not practical? That does not actually apply and work in our lives for our healing and restoration. Is there any form of truth that d- is not practical? And if you th- as you're thinking through that, think how many things done in religion are impractical or become over time impractical. So maybe we should define the terms. What does practical mean? Something, if you look up the dictionary, there are several definitions, but the one I think it's used here is something that actually works. It works. Impractical means something that's not useful or it's not helpful. That's what impractical means. It's not useful. It's not helpful. Are there things done in religion that are impractical, that are not useful, that are not helpful? Can you give any examples and explain why that's not useful? Why is that not helpful? How about superstitions? Are there superstitions in religion? And I don't mean just Christian religion, to the religions of the world. Are there superstitions in religions? Are those helpful? No, they're not helpful. They, they actually obstruct coming to reality, enlightening the mind, coming to, to healthy ways of living. How about vegans who become so strict they die of malnutrition? I've seen it. 
Is that, is that practical? How about persons who refuse antibiotics for their children because they don't want to violate their faith. In other words, we have faith that God will heal and we don't want to show lack of faith so we won't give antibiotics for curable disease. Have you, have you heard of this in the news? How, how about taking communion too often? Really, it becomes a ritual. It becomes an obligation. If I don't, I'll feel bad. How about people with mental health problems who refuse treatment because they believe if they had more faith, they wouldn't have mental health problems? <laughs> I see this a lot. And I see actually people that are in my office sometimes, and they're well. They've come with serious problems, and I've got them under treatment. And they're, and they're well. They're actually doing well. But they live in a Christian home, and their family, their father, their mother, somebody is constantly on them. You don't need those medicines. If you just had more faith, you should stop those medicines. And they put this message on them all the time. And then the, the, the quote I, I mentioned had two classes of people. Those who know their need, but they're afraid and insecure and doubt themselves until they hide. Those who are so sick at heart, they don't even know their need. And, and I wanted, there's a third class that I thought of. A third class, not spoken of in the quote. And that would be the Laodiceans. The Laodiceans, those who believe they are already righteous. Those who know they have a soul to save. And think it's already saved because they're so good. <laughs> they're, they're rich and full of goods and, and they have need of nothing. How do you reach those people? You know, those with those impractical beliefs that we were talking about, they're the saddest of all. Because they're typically good-hearted people who in their heart want to do what's right. They're trying to live a righteous life. They're trying to, to fulfill God's purposes, but they have such a distorted construct of God, how he works, his methods, that they end up doing harmful things like not eating vitamin B12 <laughs> and other things, and they get worse and worse and worse. There's the quote, and I, I can't remember the whole quote, you probably know it better, is uh, Mrs. White talks about those who have older years, such as myself, who have um, personalities are as hardened as a rock and, and not, not willing to accept truth and change. Yes, those of older years, truth is as perceptible um, as is the hardened rock. Yeah, that's what she says. Those of more mature years, older years. Um, Tim, I was thinking, you asked if any truth is impractical. I, my thought immediately went to any, any truth that's delivered with coercive strings attached can become impractical. Okay, then is it still true? It is truth. <clears throat> is it? Truth? Because the God's principle is truth presented in love. And so there's, there, is, there is cognitive truth and there is functional truth. And so here's a, here's a good example. If you take the biblical model, and I think most of us in this room would be the biblical ritual of baptism is baptism by immersion. That's the, the truth of how it's described in Scripture. That's a fact. That's a cognitive truth. Now, you're saying, now as a church, we get hold of the power of the state and we coerce people. If you don't get baptized by immersion, we'll burn you at the stake. And so people are being baptized by immersion to avoid the stake. It, it's the true method, the true method of baptism immersion, but is the method of, conver of getting people there the, the true method. It's the wrong method now. And so we've taken a truth and created a lie 
with the right. And this is one of Satan's ways of doing things. He can get people to believe the right facts, but apply it in the wrong way <laughs> that it's still corrupting. Right. Yeah. And let's think what you're saying. Yes. Hand somewhere. Yes. I'm just thinking about health and, and general rules of health that it's, it's good to exercise, but they've shown that exercise that is done that you don't like has a negative effect. Yeah, that, it is true. The mind, the mind, we talked about this in here before. So if you're doing an exercise, um, let's just say the person in a combat zone who's running from people who are trying to shoot them. <laughs> and they might... And they might run for, for five or six miles. They might do a five or six, they might do a 5K, right? <laughs> they might do a marathon, okay? Get really, they get a lot of exercise. But do you think that they're actually getting good benefit to their cardiovascular systems? No, the stress levels and the catecholamine levels and the glucocorticoid levels and stuff are so high that this is actually not turning out to be healthy. So, and you can get that. In routine exercise, though, too, if you, if you choose an exercise you do not enjoy, right. show that the lipid effects are not there, the cholesterol effects are not there. So if, you're too, if, you're th- if your emotional state is, I hate this, this is miserable, I can't stand it, oh, I just can't wait to get off of this thing, then you don't get the same risk. That's why I tell my patients exercise, find an exercise you enjoy. That's exactly right, yes. So if you don't like the preacher, it wouldn't do you much good to go to church? If you don't like the preacher, it wouldn't do you much good to go to church. Um, if you're only going for the preacher. If there, there could be other reasons to go, but, but well, you make a good point. You make a good point. Um, but back to this point of impractical. Um, this, uh, and this, this, this people who do these things, that these examples like the, the vegan who eats to the point they die, or the person who won't give antibiotics to their kids, or the person who won't take meds even though the meds help, um, because, because of the, the, do you understand, do you understand the root cause to all of this? It is, it, it roots itself back into a misunderstanding of God's law and seeing God as a dictator who will punish you if you don't break the rules and thus it creates in you a fear-based religion. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I will do the wrong things. I'm afraid there'll be a, a sin checklist that won't be even... I'm afraid that God will have to punish me. And it's a, not a love-based religion. It's a fear-based, self-focused religion. I can't give my kids the antibiotics they need because I might have a demerit against my heavenly record for not having enough faith in God and therefore I will be held accountable. So I don't give my kids their antibiotics. See, it's a very self-referenced, fear-based, and that's what the false law construct does in Christianity. Remember Revelation says? If you read comments that are true but misunderstand what they're saying, Mrs. White talks about deleterious drugs. And so anytime you have antibiotics in some people's minds are classified as a drug. Well, actually, Ellen White used the word, if I'm not mistaken, she used the word um, drug medications, which are poisons and, and uh, poisons and should not be used. Right. Okay? And in her day, that was arsenic, strychnine, mercury, laudanum. Those were the drug medications. Yeah, but, but you, you, and they were all poisoned. You understand what those drugs are, yeah. but someone who does not have the understanding will say, oh, this antibiotic or this psychiatric medication or whatever is a drug, and I shouldn't take drugs because Mrs. White talks about drugs. That, right. Right. And that's a fairly thoughtless way to approach religion. Somebody in authority has made a rule and made a statement, and therefore I don't think I just follow a rule. But sometimes it has origins in being uninformed or not having access to the information to reinterpret it. Perhaps, but it, not, not not in every case. But it's still just as damaging. Still just it's still just as damaging, but it's 
it gives us a, a little different attitude toward the person who is struggling with this. Right. Right, but, but those, those persons with good hearts are the ones who Thessalonians describes, uh, well, those are the ones who have hearts that have developed a love for the truth. They're not the ones who have, don't love the truth. They, they love the truth. So they're, when, when the light does present itself, they're open and receptive and thankful and appreciative that they're out of this cognitive bind that was so oppressive. And it's our privilege when we do understand it to, to share the information that we have. So... The solution then, of course, is Jesus, who is God's law, made visible and accept, accessible. He is the living law, the word made flesh. He lived out God's law perfectly in all ways. And he said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And what testimony did Jesus give? Do you ever see Jesus punishing anyone? No, he didn't have to. He didn't have to. And so in Revelation, it talks about the remnant are those at the end of time who hold to the testimony of Jesus. What testimony did he give about his father? Do we hold to that testimony? Do we say that, that we hold to the, to the God who Jesus revealed? That's what he said. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father is like this. That's the end time people. Sunday's lesson references the story of Jesus on his way to heal Jairus' daughter when the woman uh, with the history of bleeding touches his garment and was healed. The lesson describes this as, being an, uh, as uh, Jesus being interrupted and then asks a series of questions. It says, let's face it, none of us likes interruptions, do we? We are busy. We have things to do, places to go, jobs to get done. We set goals for ourselves and want to meet those goals, sometimes with a certain time frame as well. Interruptions can get in the way. It talks about we can get irritable and so forth. The lesson is making really some good points about our human nature and how we, and, and, and I'm guilty, just tell you I'm guilty, interrupt me sometimes and I can snap like that. It's like I'm in the middle of something, don't bother me right now. I'm, I'm writing, it's like, ask Christy sometimes, she'll come in the office and I'm right in the middle of writing something. What? <laughs> okay, that's my human weakness at times. Okay, but, but that's true, really good points here. Yet I'm, I am not certain the example they chose of the woman who touched his garment is a good example of someone interrupting Jesus. First off, did the woman actually interrupt what he was doing? She was... From Jairus' point, it was. From, no. From, she was so unobtrusive that no one even noticed except Jesus felt energy leaving him. And who actually stopped the procession? Was it the woman? Jesus. Jesus. So she did not intrude herself to interrupt. He stopped. Now, further... Why did Jesus stop? Because this was an interruption and he needed to make clear that people were not to stop him on his way? I don't think so. What was Jesus' mission? To reveal the Father and provide the remedy to sin. So that's what he was on earth to do. Did stopping and exposing, bringing to light... So all could see, and including this woman, validating her faith, the healing that just happened, was that an interruption to his mission or a magnification and further uh, moving forward of his mission? It was a teaching moment. Exactly. This was not an interruption to his mission because his mission was to do that very thing. And he, and he took this as an opportunity to magnify. Even when his teaching was interrupted, the roof is broken up, the paralytic is lowered down to forum, so his teaching is interrupted. One could say, was this actually an interruption or was suddenly a grand opportunity presented? 
Consider the high drama in that room. You know, Jesus has been talking about three hours and some people dozing off in the back of the room, okay? And uh, suddenly the roof breaks up. Could you imagine? And this person, do you not think everyone's attention became very quickly? He's like, oh, what's what's he going to do? What's going to happen here? Okay, it's like uh, everybody's holding their breath. And then what Jesus does. So he he doesn't get interrupted by this. This is part of his mission. He magnifies his purpose. Your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. I mean, this was powerful, um, extension of his mission. It wasn't an interruption. In my view, it wasn't an interruption. But there were interruptions. Anybody think of some actual interruptions that he had to deal with? There's se- Demons interrupted him or tried to. When, when Peter uh, pulled into the side and said, This is a good one. Okay, this is a good one. Peter says, No, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and get killed. No way. And how about when Peter pulls out a sword and starts whacking off ears and other body parts and things? Okay, these were interruptions. How about the, 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 the lawyers and tricksters trying to trip him up and get him to say things to, uh, were these interruptions? How about when they drug him out to stone him? Were these interruptions? So there were interruptions to his, his mission. I don't think the woman was one of them. And how did he handle those other interruptions? Sometimes he disappeared from their presence. Sharply rebuked at times. Yes, he did. He sharply rebuked. Get thee behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. Put your sword away. Don't you think if I wanted to call my father, 10,000 angels could come and deliver me here and so forth and so on? How could I finish my mission, though? You're interfering with my mission. I can't do my mission if we do this. My mission is not to do physical war. My mission is to cure the problem. So, yes, I think he did when he was actually interrupted on mission. He rebuked those who were interrupting him. And the lesson was suggesting perhaps maybe that's not the case. I think this is... There was another one when his uh, disciples said, your mother and brother and sisters are here to see you. And who's my mother, brother, and sister? He didn't get interrupted and stopped go. He stayed on mission. His real mission was to reveal the gospel. Why don't you stay here and keep healing rather than going to the villages? Yep. Yep. We've had a good success here in, in Capernaum. Why don't you stay here? Right. So exactly. There were interruptions. I don't think the woman was one of them. I think we kind of agree with that. So what are the lesson then in dealing with interruptions? The first is to know your mission. To know your mission. And what your goals are in the mission that you're on. Are we on task for God? Our primary goal to reveal God in all we do? Or are we distracted on the things of the world and miss our true mission and purpose? So if we're on mission, then we can take some of these things that might be interruptions and use them to further our mission. It also gives us a good example right now on how the Bible can be interpreted. Interpreted to mean different things to different people. Depending on their viewpoint and the premises and the assumptions and the preconceived ideas they come to the Bible with. To me... I think the lesson missed the true mission of Jesus and thus they interpreted the woman touching him as an interruption rather than an opportunity that it didn't interrupt him at all. It was an actual um, validation of his mission and furthering of his mission. It wasn't an interruption of it. But if we we go with with the conclusion of the lesson, there's an interruption and how he handled it then we might find ourselves, if we were to rebuke somebody for interrupting us at some point, we might feel guilty for that. We shouldn't rebuke people for interrupting. Jesus didn't rebuke in this situation, but that's because this wasn't an interruption. He did rebuke Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. And so we might draw wrong lessons and act in wrong ways if we're not discerning. Yes? Um, 
gives this. The disciples stopped the children from coming to Jesus as an interruption. There's another one, yes, and Jesus rebuked them. Don't don't do that. Bring the children to me. And so you see, Jesus was redirecting, correcting, rebuking, if you will, when real interruptions to his mission happened. And so again, there's several things we're learning here. One how we interpret the events. Uh, We don't disagree with the historical account. The woman touched his garment. He stopped. He had a conversation. But there's an interpretation that interrupted him. That's an interpretation. It puts a certain slant on it. I I disagree with that. And so each person, to be fully persuaded in their own mind, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. But depending on how you interpret it, then you can draw lessons that might not apply. And you might find yourself in the need to rebuke or correct somebody, but then you, and I have patients in my office, this very stuff happens to them. They needed to correct them. They needed to set a boundary. That's what Jesus is doing at times, setting boundaries with Peter. And they feel bad about setting boundaries. But Jesus wouldn't speak that way. Jesus, because they, they read lessons like this. Well, that's the wrong lesson. Know your mission. Monday's lesson points us to blind Bartimaeus and the paralytic of 38 years and points out that Jesus asked them both questions. And, le- and the lesson asks, why would he do that? Why would Jesus, and so the question is, why would Jesus ask questions like, what do you want? Do you want to get well? Why would Jesus ask of these people? I mean, when you read that, do you, why, why would he ask them? They're blind. One's blind. One's a paralytic. Why would he ask them what they want? Jesus likes to have a desire of them. He, they want to, to do. He wants them to have a desire. Okay, and you were saying? You don't know your need, don't want healing. No amount of remedies going to help you. Yes. Check out their faith. Check out their faith. There's a few doctors in the room besides myself, and I can tell you in my practice, I always ask my patients during their initial evaluation, near the end of the initial evaluation, what their goal is in coming to see me. What do they want to have happen in this experience? Why do I ask that? You might, you might assume, is everybody there to get well? At the time, he was their physician. Yeah, so, Wendell? Well, the, the issue is that the, there's some obvious things. I mean, if, if the leg is crooked, you may think that what they came here is to straighten the leg, but actually what they're wanting is, is pain on the opposite side. Or pain medicine. Okay. I have patients that don't actually want, and there are certain types of personality structure issues that don't want wellness. Not everybody wants wellness. That's why I asked. Not everybody wants wellness or other agendas. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But, but since you brought this up, there's a, there's a kind of a diagnostic question you can ask people to kind of get where their mindset is. And, uh, and it's not 100%, but it gives you some insight. Now you can ask somebody, if you had a really bad cavity and a really bad pain and you went to the dentist, what would you want from the dentist? The healthy people would say, fix it. Fill the cavity, fix it. The other people will say, pain medicine. You will find that. They will say pain. And that's, boy, when they, if they say pain medicine, some flags should go off. Okay, think about what they're wanting. They got a really bad cavity. And, that's, and, and, and they say it with all sense. It never occurs to them. It doesn't even occur to them to get the tooth fixed. They want relief of the pain. And there are people in life that have emotional pain. And all they're seeking is something to make them feel different on the inside. Give me something to feel better. Let me feel better. And so I have to teach truths to people. Once there is brokenness of any kind, any kind of brokenness, you have a broken leg, there are no pain-free options. None. Except death. Kill you, you won't feel pain. Other than that, no pain-free options. 
That's not accepted. If, if, if you go to the doctor and you put a pin in the bone and you go to physical therapy, that whole process, there's pain in that process. Now, eventually, it can lead to a time when you're not in pain anymore, but there, at that moment, there's no pain-free options. If you say, don't touch it, leave it alone, it hurts too bad, it's going to hurt to reduce it, to set it, that's going to increase my pain, it'll be really high for a short time, and you just leave it alone and don't touch it. You have chronic pain and chronic disability. There are many people with emotional brokenness that that's their approach. Don't touch it. It will hurt worse to touch it. Just leave it alone. And just give me, just give me, you know, oxycodones for my broken leg. I'll just take pain medicine so it doesn't hurt so bad. And there are people mentally and emotionally that their whole life is like this. This is how they live. And then once they start living this way, there are other rewards that come to them in addition to the pain medicine they're on. The other rewards are people don't hold them as accountable. They are not expect, you have a broken leg, I promise, no matter what your duties are in life, if your leg is actually broken, people won't expect the same thing from you. They will expect you not to carry the laundry into the other room. They will expect you not to, you know, and all the things you're not going to do. You're not going to go grocery shopping. You're not going to do these things. Why? Because your leg's broken. So when you have this brokenness that never heals, then you don't have the same responsibilities you have to carry in life anymore. There's a reward for that. And so there are patients that I see that don't want wellness because if they get well, they will have to start shouldering life responsibilities. They might, and if they've done this a long time in relation, I'll get to you in just a second. They've done this a long time. There might be tension in a relationship. They might be married to somebody who is really resentful having carried these burdens for a long, long time. And so now there's fear. If I get well, my spouse will leave me. Very, very likely, actually could happen. Uh, and, and so they, they can't get well because my spouse and the past spouse stays because I couldn't abandon them. It's like, what a horrible person I would be to abandon them in their sickness. I can't do it. I got to stay. And then they're, well, I might lose my government check. My disability check might go away if I get well. I can't do that. And so you have all these reinforcers that happen. So, you know, Jesus asked them, why, what do you want from me? See, you had a comment. I ran into a case at one time that this person did not want to lose their disability check. Yep. They didn't want to get well. Yep. That's absolutely right. I have some that actually... Sorry. You also want an assessment of whether their goals are realistic. Yeah, that's true, too. If you'd ask the paralytic, what do you want? And the guy said, I want to fly. You, know, you already know something. The, the, the goal is not realistic. Okay. That's, 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 that's well said, too. That's absolutely well said, too. Because yep. Yep. I have patients that maybe come to me in early Alzheimer's or middle Alzheimer's or late Alzheimer's. And the family, what, what's your expectation? That I'm going to restore your family member in late stage Alzheimer's back to themselves? It's not. It's not realistic. No, it's not going to happen. So our expectations in a late stage Alzheimer's are very, very simple: sleep every night soundly, have a good appetite, not agitated and violent, not wandering off, controlling hallucinations. So they have a pleasant life. They're happy. They're affable. They're not violent. They're not hostile. That that's a reasonable goal. But we're not going to restore them to their prime, previous level of function. So that's well said. So Jesus is asking what they want for, for several reasons, as was said in here. But another one is, God doesn't violate free will. Amen. And see, if they're like the persons I was saying, these people don't want to get well. So God is not going to heal them against their will. So he needs their willful investment in their wellness. In fact, can doctors really get people well against their will? You can't get people well against their will. I have certain patients, I have patients that I diagnose and I'm highly confident this particular medication would resolve their, their particular presentation because I have such experience with it and I, I'm really confident. 
But they come in biased against this medicine because of something read on the internet or some friend who is completely not biologically related to them took it and had this problem. So they have this terrible fear in their mind that if they take this medicine, this bad thing is going to happen to them. Do I prescribe it anyway? No, I do not. Because if I prescribe it anyway, their belief, their, their belief so grounded and so certain that it's going to cause this problem will almost certainly cause that problem. And not only will they not benefit from the medicine, they will undermine their confidence in me as uh, who I don't know what I'm doing. And then I don't listen to them. And so our own therapeutic relationship has been contaminated by it. So I, I can't use the medicine if they have that belief. Do you think that ever happens with God? That God wants to heal people, but they have such a bias. They have such a belief in their mind that he can't do anything for them. What did you read in the scripture? He went to certain towns and cities and he couldn't heal anyone in there. He couldn't do anything for them. Or he said that they weren't ready to hear what he had to say. Yeah. Our own biases and beliefs can actually obstruct the work of God in our life. And further, I think Jesus wanted to engage them in personal relationship with him. He wanted what we call in medical terms therapeutic alliance. He wanted them to not just get well, but he wanted them to have confidence in him, the healer the one who brings the wellness. And so we engage them in the conversation. What do you want from me? What do you want from me? Tuesday's lesson. And we are light speed today, guys. First paragraph says, Jesus says the Lord knew more about the people than they knew about themselves. There are many accounts in the Gospels where Jesus showed that he not only knew what people were thinking at the present, he knew their histories as well. I think the lesson rightly points out that Jesus did know things about people that was in their hearts, what they were planning. Judas, did he know Judas was going to betray him? Yes, he knew things about the woman at the well. He knew about her history. So yes, I think the lesson rightly points out that Jesus did in fact have this knowledge. The question I have for you though, what does the lesson mean when it uses the phrase, Jesus as the Lord? knew more about people. What are they suggesting by that? Get a special knowledge. Ah. Ah. Yeah, are they suggesting that Jesus, because he was fully God, was using his own divine abilities and power to access knowledge that other human beings could not access? This is a common belief in Christianity. I would think the majority of Christians believe that because Jesus was divine, that his miracles were done by accessing his own divine ability. That's the majority of Christians believe this. And thus, it's implied here, Jesus as the Lord knew more. Isn't that what's implied there? Is that how he knew it? Because he was divine. He was accessing his own divine abilities to know these things. There are serious problems with this. What would the issue be if Jesus did, did this? Did access divine abilities? What would the issue be? First off, as you think about that, let's ask, are there evidences in Scripture that Jesus did not perform any miracles, including the miracle of, of miraculous knowledge, by using his own divine power? He didn't become human. So I'm going to read to you some, some passages. Tell me what's implied by these passages, particularly in the, in the area of Jesus as the Lord knew all this stuff already. This, that's what's implied. Here's, some, here's, here's a few passages. Mark 1.35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6.12. One of of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. What would be the purpose of such prayer 
if he had all access to all this knowledge in his own right? What would be the purpose? Empowerment. But but if he already had the power. You see what I'm saying here? Why does he need that faith if he already has the power to overcome in his own right? If, if, if as the Lord, he's got access to divine power and that can fend off all assaults of the devil, why does he need faith? See, so you're exactly right. He, he does, but go ahead. He didn't use his own power. He wanted to be an example to us. Yes, he didn't use his own power. And in fact, John 5.30, Jesus said that by himself, he can do nothing. In my own self, I can do nothing. What's he mean by that? What's that mean? Isn't he fully God? How can he not do anything by himself if he's fully God? What's, what's going on? How do you understand his humanity? He would be an example to us if he was using his own power. So how did he do these things then? How did he walk on water? How did he perform these miracles? How did he raise the dead? How did he do this? With God's help. Ah, are you saying because he was trusting his father and it was through the father's power, not his own? So then Jesus raised the dead like Elijah raised the dead. Jesus walked on water like Elisha raised an axe head. Jesus healed the sick like the apostles healed the sick. Jesus had foreknowledge like Daniel had foreknowledge. Jesus face radiated like the sun, like Moses and Elijah on either side of him radiated like the sun. And Jesus said that we would do greater acts than these when his spirit came. And his spirit is here, you just don't access it. Yes. And what do you think is the obstacle? I think we could do great, we would do great. What's the obstacle in accessing the the, the, the Lord's Lack power? Of faith. Lack of faith. What meaning? Dependence. Dependence. Lack of trust. Total. Lack of confidence. A different regard to because if we heal the sick and whatnot as occurred now, there are it's a different time and it would be perceived differently now. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this lack of faith and trust even a step farther. I think most people in here have absolute faith that God can do these things. I don't think many people in here doubt his ability to do these things. Do you think? I think we, we truly believe that. See, it's not that we lack faith in God's ability. I think we lack confidence, faith, trust in his purpose or will to do these things. We don't, we're not in touch with him like Elisha was, that we understand his purposes and how they're being worked out, so we have confidence this is his will. So it's more of a lack of a relationship. Yes. We, we don't, ha- we don't hear, hear him speaking. And Ellen White says if we would, we could, he would speak his mysteries to us. And so I don't think we lack the faith in his ability. I think we lack the faith in un- because we don't have clear understanding of his purpose. Well, does he want to heal his purpose or does he not want to? What's he trying to accomplish here? We, we don't know. So we have faith in him, but we're not connected to him in the way that he would like us to be connected. I believe that God can do it. But sometimes I'm not so sure he can do it through me. Okay. Yes. Traditionally, when we pray for the sick, or when someone is anointed and everything, you know, always hear, if it is your will. Uh, and I think that is true. We always have to put things in God's hands. But I think 
many times that is actually giving us ourselves an out too because how if I ask God to heal this person that we're praying for and he doesn't uh, people are is it not a lack that well we really don't expect it but we're anointing them so, so what do you think happened in the New Testament in Acts where they, where, where they asked Peter wasn't it Peter they asked for something and Peter says I have gold or silver I don't have but what I have I give you and he healed them how come Peter didn't say uh, well, gold and silver I don't have but I'll ask the Lord if it's his will to heal you I don't disagree with you. I'm just pointing out there was a different mindset that Peter had. And I think, this is not my notes. I'm kind of just brainstorming with you guys in real time right now. I'm just wondering if we have a certain conditioning that sometimes undercuts our confidence in the Lord. Yes. Um, I'll quote from your remedy. This is Peter somewhere where you said um, something about um, God's character is humble and he will only pour out his spirit on you if you are humble. So, yeah, the, the idea there is that does God pour his spirit at the latter rain on people to misrepresent him? If you are, are, have such a distorted view of God in your heart and character that you would go out and misrepresent him, does he empower you with his spirit to do that? No. So the spirit is poured out on people who have come to a true connection and knowledge of him who can represent him rightly. Yeah, I think that's true too. Um, so, so what's implied here if Jesus was using his own power? Here's the problem that I see that Jesus didn't have to trust his father then. He could just rely on his own power. What's the problem if Jesus completed his mission just relying on his own power without placing trust in his father? Is there a problem for our salvation if that's the way it worked? There's a serious problem for our salvation. Jesus didn't overcome then as a human. He overcame as a divine being. And which would mean that Jesus didn't exercise his human brain, his human will, to develop a perfect character. Remember Desire of Ages 761? Uh, you guys know the quote? No? Yes, you do. Come on. <laughs> that the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man is not to give. Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Okay? This, this is something he developed. Remember, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. How could he grow in wisdom and stature if he had access to divine infinity abilities? There's no growth there. He's growing as a human being. So, if Jesus didn't exercise his human brain and develop, he wouldn't have developed a perfect character, which is what we need. The remedy for sin would not have been achieved. Also, he would have failed to demonstrate one important point of creation. And that is, in Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, there was no manufacturer's defect. There was nothing wrong with Adam and Eve as God created them. They didn't sin because of a defect. Jesus taking weakened humanity, where he got fatigued and tired and hungry, still lived perfectly in harmony with God's design for life and developed a perfect human character. There was nothing wrong with Adam and Eve's ability to live in harmony with God's design and law. No manufacturer's defect. We can't, can't point back to God. Well, you, you, you designed them wrong. So it's just another evidence that vindicates God in this great controversy over his trustworthiness. I think what I'm trying to put together here on the whole thing, uh, as far as God's will uh, and healing faith, all of these issues, isn't it really about focus at the bottom level? Because... It's very easy for us to say, well, if I just had enough faith, 
God would or whatever, that's putting the focus back on me. Right. So I'm trying to put all these comments together. And to me, it really comes down to focus. Is my focus on God or is it on me? And if it's on God, then he can transform me. I agree with that completely. What I was trying to suggest, and he will transform us if our focus is on him. By beholding, we become changed. Law of worship, design law stuff. We will become like what we admire and worship. As we trust him, the spirit comes in. We get new motives. And so all what you're saying is true. I was trying to suggest, though, in that journey, should we have the expectation that as we journey with Christ, as we experience that transforming of motives, that we have greater enlightenment of understanding of his purposes, that we can have greater confidence in what he's trying to achieve, rather, or do we just say, I love him, he's great, I understand his methods, I have no idea what he's trying to do though so that's all i'm trying to say i was trying to add that peace that we don't only have confidence in his ability but we as we walk with him we get greater greater confidence what he's trying to achieve in in different places we can hear the spirit leading us this is his goal here this is what he wants us to do in this situation and I, i'm not there yet but I, i'm seeing a vision of where he wants to take us we become bold in christ because it's him in us it's not because we must it up right exactly there you go. Yes. From Thursday's lesson, it says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plan. We will not get to that today. Okay. okay. So, so, but that's a good one, and it's in the notes, so I hope you look at it. Back to the lesson here. It says, um, in, in the next few paragraphs, about the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof, and Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Remember the story. Okay. And I wanted to ask several questions about this scenario, and we'll probably wrap up with this. In that culture... Back then, would it have been hard for people to realize the man's sins had been forgiven prior to the events of that day? Yes. Do you understand in that culture, they could not have conceived this man had sins forgiven being a paralytic and being sick? That's why he was a paralytic. Right. This is, this, this, it made it hard for them to realize. They had the belief that if you're sick and paralytic, then you're being punished by God because you're on the outs with him. So his condition was in their mindset, in their culture, their, their beliefs about what was happening with him obstructed their ability to realize that the man may have been forgiven before then. The question is, was the man truly forgiven of his sin? Was he or was he not? Yes. When was the man forgiven of his sin? When did God in heaven forgive this man? Before he ever committed him. Ah, okay. You guys are going there, aren't you? Okay. What caused what caused God to forgive this man his sin? He's a God of love, and a God of love does not remember. First Corinthians thirteen does not record. And I remember your sins no more. Cast them as far as the east and west. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, so the point I'm getting at, in their culture, the man was unforgiven and God was not willing to forgive him. He was punishing him. But God had forgiven him. He had been forgiven from God's heart, God's, his whole life. Was God the problem for this man that needed a solution? God's unforgiving, and we need to do something so God will forgive. Is that the problem? And that's what's taught in Christianity today. God is, God is the judge, and he can't forgive unless the proper payments have been made. And if your sin hasn't been paid for, then God legally can't forgive you. And so God's the problem that needs solution. And God won't forgive you until you ask. And God won't forgive you till you ask. What did this man believe about his standing before God prior to the interactions with Christ? He believed he was on the outs. He believed he was unforgiven. Did, the, did what the paralytic believe actually establish God's attitude and God's mindset? No, it was simply an obstruction 
in the mind of the paralytic to receive the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God. Notice, God was forgiving him, forgiving towards him, had forgiven him in his heart, but the man couldn't receive it because of his mindset. So what did Jesus do? Oh, by the way, where did the man, the man had this false conception? Where did the man get this false conception? Did he create it on his own? Did he think it up all by himself? Did he read it in the back of a cereal box? Now, where did he get this belief? Church. Church. He got it at church. Get, get your mind around that. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, you make them twice the son of hell as he was before. He not only doesn't know you, now he has beliefs about you that are so false, they have to be overturned before he can come to know you. And he got those at church. So what did Jesus do? He overturned their theories about God. That's what he did. He demonstrated God forgives freely, without payment, without legal adjustment, without being pled with, without sacrifices being offered. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. No one pled with me. If you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. No sacrifices have been offered. No payments have been made. No legal adjustments have occurred. Your sins are forgiven you. And so that you might know that the Son of God has authority, Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. Which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or take up your bed and walk? You see, design law stuff going on here. Healing the heart, mind, and the body. This is what's actually happening. And how did the religious leaders react to this incredible, beautiful, freeing message? How did they react? They're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. And you watch through history, anytime the truth about God comes, the primary opposers to the truth about God come from religious leadership. They don't come from the agnostics and the atheists. If you look through the history of all of mankind, the primary opponents to truth were, were priests, pastors, church leaders, and so forth, because their system of legal accountability, punishment, that they have worked so hard to attain, and their, their system of fairness, it's not fair. You can't forgive him. He's been punished. How dare you suggest such a thing? Their whole system is being overturned by love and grace. And it hasn't changed a bit. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator, the designer, the builder of reality, who has created all reality to operate in harmony with your character of love. We ask that your spirit will come to set our minds free. Help us understand more clearly, not just your nature, your character, but how you run your universe, how, how you are unfolding your purposes here on earth that we can intelligently participate and cooperate with you as your friends at this time in earth's history to take this message to lighten the world that you will soon come, we pray. In your holy name, amen. amen.